the church into this space this morning. Uh, if we haven't met, my name's Jamie. Excited to have you here. I see the splash zone still remains empty as always, no matter how we set up this room. It's just how it's gonna be, I guess. Um, but before we jump into the scriptures this morning, uh, just as uh, a brief announcement, if for any reason during the remainder of our time and even going into the coming weeks, if you need access, um, as a new mom to a different space um, with your newborn, or uh, if you just need to get out of the auditorium because things are getting a little crazy, it, it won't have anything to do with, with me because I've learned to preach through anything and I love preaching and it doesn't matter what the makeup of the room is. And so, uh, but I, I do wanna make that known that if that's you for any reason, if you need to take kids out, uh, you can actually come back to the entrance to our kids wing, knock on the door and whoever's running security back there this morning will get you to an appropriate space inside that, that wing. Um, if you were around a couple years ago, you, you may remember we did a walkthrough uh, of some various topics in the book of Proverbs, and we're actually gonna do that same thing uh, over the course of the next couple of months. We, we've been working our way through the book of Luke since Advent of last year. We had about a six-month run at the book of Luke. We managed to get through uh, nearly nine chapters of that book of the Bible, which means that we've got, if I'm doing my math rightly, 15 more to go. And so we'll pick that back up, season two, Book of Luke, the journey to Jerusalem, uh, going into the fall, we'll carry that on into 2022, the spring, maybe even the summer, not real sure there. Um, but that's where we're headed, futuristically speaking. As far as the present goes, we're gonna spend the next couple months in the Book of Proverbs, we're gonna offboard Luke for, for just a little bit here. And as you'll see, by the time all's said and done, if you were around a couple years ago when we worked through uh, some various topics in Proverbs, there's a similar framing that's gonna happen this morning. Uh, I'll get to that in just a second, but uh, I wanna start out by saying this, and I think many of us would, would agree and know this to be true, that, that none of us lives a stationary life. We're, we're all going in some capacity. Even when we feel like we're stuck, we're still in motion, all of us on a path. So that the question is not so much is my life going somewhere as it is, where is the path on which I'm journeying actually leading me? Joe Rigney, assistant professor of theology and literature at Bethlehem College and Seminary says, we are always sowing the seeds of our future selves. We are embarked, heading in a particular direction and sooner or later we are bound to end up there. Reaping always follows sowing, he says, like night follows day. Or in the words of the one hit wonder semisonic in their famous song, Closing Time, time for you to go out to the places you will be from. That, that what we do now is shaping our future, it always is, as we're becoming who we will be this very day. And here's the good news, God not only knows that, but he cares deeply. It's one of the reasons that he gave us the gift of, of wisdom literature in the scriptures. Of course, all the Bible promotes the way of wisdom, but when we use the language of wisdom literature, we're specifically talking about Job, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, some of the Psalms. The book of Proverbs, which is where we're gonna camp out this summer, it's an anthology. It's a collection of writings from several authors. Solomon contributed the most, is the most famous, which is why most people attribute all of Proverbs to him. Let me just pose a question. Have you ever considered the following? If Solomon was so wise, wise enough to author much of the book of Proverbs, why did he die such a fool? According to 1 Kings 11, 
We're told that he married hundreds of women who worshiped foreign gods, 700 wives and 300 concubines to be exact, that he turned away his heart after these so-called other gods, building altars of worship to them, and he was part of the reason that the kingdom monarchy of Israel became divided. If Solomon was so wise, why did he die such a fool? And the answer in part is that Solomon didn't heed his own words. Solomon himself says in Proverbs chapter 19, verse 27, cease to hear instruction, my son, and you will stray from the words of knowledge. That, that just because we're on a path of wisdom today, it doesn't mean that, uh, that we'll find ourselves on the path of wisdom tomorrow. Solomon is a sobering example that we must persevere in the faith, that we must always preach the gospel to ourselves, the promises, the presence, the character of God, that we never graduate beyond that exercise. That Solomon is, is no more of a hero of the book of Proverbs than Jonah was the hero of his own story. The book of Proverbs is meant to point us to the same hero as every other book of the Bible, namely wisdom personified in the person of Jesus Christ, I love the way Ray Ortland Jr., one of the grandpas of our church planting network, says it. He says, the book of Proverbs is a gospel book because it is part of the Bible. That means the book of Proverbs is good news for bad people. It is about grace for sinners. It is about hope for failures. It is about wisdom for idiots. This book is Jesus himself coming to us as our counselor, as our sage, as our life coach, the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, is a competent thinker for all times and all cultures. He's a genius, and he freely offers us, even us, his unique wisdom. Do you see him that way? You can have him that way, the universe's greatest expert on you. So what I would ask this morning, are you in need of good news? Are you in need of grace? Are you in need of hope? Are you in need of wisdom? Because if so, I think, you're, I think you're in the right place. Let me go ahead and invite you to open up to Proverbs chapter nine this morning. We're gonna work our way through the entirety of that chapter by the time all is said and done. And amazingly, because of the start time of our service now, you still get out in time for brunch. So how do you like that? If you don't have a Bible, uh, you should be able to track on the screen behind me with this morning's passage, any sort of... Uh, commentary quotes or passages of scripture even outside of the book of Proverbs as we work our way through this morning. Let me go ahead and pray for us and, and we'll jump in and we'll get to work. God, thank you for the beauty of a multi-genre canon of scripture. As we've seen for the last six months, the beauty of narrative, character development in the book of Luke the unfolding story of redemption in Jesus Christ and the uniqueness of how we see that in a narrative. Thank you for wisdom literature. So we get to spend time in the book of Proverbs over the next couple of months, even this morning, for the beauty of poetry and the imagery that it brings to bear as we consider what it means to walk the path of wisdom versus the path of folly. And Lord, I pray that you would use that this morning, that imagery to stir our hearts, to awaken our minds to the reality that two roads are always diverging in a yellow wood and we have a choice to make. And it's a choice that will lead us to function either as enemies of our own joy or will lead us to maximize our happiness in you. So Lord, 
I pray for the second of those, for every one of us that inhabits this space or is engaging via the live stream this morning or will listen three days from now on a podcast. God, would, would you do that great work by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, that, that we would both be grateful for the cross of Jesus Christ by the time we're done this morning and that we, we would see that Jesus didn't just die to purchase our forgiveness, but to purchase our spirit-empowered, sin-killing obedience, Lord. Thank you for that both and, and I pray that you would, move in our hearts to, to do that great work of drawing us closer to yourself, that we might walk in wisdom, that we might walk in true happiness and lasting joy, the kind of joy that can only be found in you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So chap- chapters one through nine of the book of Proverbs, there's something of an introduction, a, a collection of poems designed to compel us to choose wisdom over folly. That's the very purpose of the book itself. If you pick up the first few verses, verses of chapter one, it says this, the, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Right, the book of Proverbs, it's about obtaining wisdom. First nine chapters made up of poetic attempts to compel us to choose wisdom over folly. It's not until chapter 10 that you really get into the actual Proverbs themselves. The last time we, we spent time in this book of the Bible, you, you may recall we opened up with the very same passage that we're gonna look at this morning, chapter nine, providing us with the final poem in the first major section of the book. I want us to, to revisit this poem and allow the imagery uh, to frame our next couple of months in this incredible book of the Bible. As it offers us, this poem does arguably the the clearest contrast in all of the book between the way of wisdom and the way of folly. Opening with a description of Lady Wisdom, the first six verses, closing with a description of Lady Folly, the last six verses, giving us the the key to the lockbox, so to speak, in the middle six verses. It's a really cool framing. Both of these ladies, so to speak, calling out to the simple, both extending an invitation to come and die. Uh, Dying, I should say. One of them is extending an invitation to die for sure. But but I I want you to notice the difference between the the one and the other. If you pick up here in chapter nine of Proverbs, verse one, says this, wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. With wisdom personified, you immediately get this picture of strength. The house she's built, it's a stately home, seven pillars strong. The number seven uh, symbolizing completion or perfection in the scriptures so that the house of wisdom, it's perfect in every way. It's a picture of order coming forth from chaos. As we all know that a house doesn't start out a house, right? Rather lumber, sheetrock, concrete, etc. Lady Wisdom exercises creative power in building her house, beauty from chaos, order from disarray. If you've read the scriptures, you know that's what God does. That's his MO. He did that in his work of creation, shaping the formless void into something beautiful, and he does that in his work of redemption, taking our chaotic, sinful stories and fashioning something beautiful out of the, the brokenness. He goes on to say in verse two, she has slaughtered her beasts, wisdom has. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. 
right? Lady Wisdom, she's not lazy. Rather, she's diligent, hardworking, committed to providing nothing but the best for her guests. She serves filet and fine wine. She pulls out all the stops for those who will accept her invitation to dine at her table. Verse three, she has sent out her young women to call from the highest places in the town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine that I've mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. Lady Wisdom, she's, she's no respecter of persons, inviting any and all who will acknowledge that they're lacking. Simple, verse four, meaning open to instruction. Lacking sense, verse four, meaning destitute of mind. You could say her table, it's not for the, the sophisticated. It's not for the proud, not for the unteachable. Rather, her table is for the humble, the poor in spirit. To those, Wisdom says, you're, you're welcome here. And make no mistake about it, the stakes are incredibly high. Whether we choose uh, or not, the house of wisdom, so to speak, it's a matter of life and death. Look at verse six, leave your simple ways and live. That if we accept the invitation to the house of wisdom, we live, says Proverbs nine. If we reject the invitation, we die. That wisdom is calling out to all who will listen. I've got something so much better to offer you than the woman across the street which the end of the poem all the more helps us to see in revealing that stark contrast for what it is. If you skip down to verse 13, we're told, the woman folly is loud. She's seductive and knows nothing. That unlike Lady Wisdom who exhibits beauty and order, Lady Folly is loud. She's unruly, unrestrained. Unlike Lady Wisdom who's noble and above reproach, Lady Folly is seductive. She lacks discretion, no value system. Her motto is, if you got it, flaunt it. Goes on in verse 14. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. Unlike Lady Wisdom, who slaughtered her beast, mixed her wine, set her table, Lady Folly's done nothing to prepare for those who will sit at her table. And in fact, there's really nothing to prepare in the first place, right? No, no choicest of meats, no finest of wines, only bread and water and stolen water at that. Stolen water, sweet, she says. Bread eaten in secret is pleasant. She speaks in half-truths. Because we all know sin is sweet, pleasing in the moment. If we're honest, we, we all have some sort of sweet tooth for sin. We're all in this series over the next seven weeks, we're all gonna have the week that we wish we would have skipped. We can put it that way. We have a different form of a sweet tooth, all of us. It just manifests itself differently in each of our lives. The truth is, sin may be sweet for, for a season, but in the end, it's revolting, it's repulsive, it's It's ugly. I mean, just like Satan, Lady Folly sweeps the connection between sin and death under the rug, dangling the lure in hopes that those to whom she calls won't see the hook. Took my kids fishing, and that was the aim yesterday. Cover up that hook so the fish doesn't see what's coming. It's what Satan does. It's what Lady Folly does. 
inviting any and all to sit at her table to, to raise a glass and to toast their own death. Verse 18 why it says, he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol, that those on a path to destruction, they rarely know it, as the land of the dead oftentimes looks like the land of the living and vice versa, right? When we went through Proverbs before in framing that series, I showed a scene from the movie Corpse Bride. I'm not going to show it this morning because of all the kiddos in the room. I think it would terrify some of them, but the 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 layout and cinematography of that movie is you have the land of the living and it's established in grayscale. It looks really boring. You don't wanna actually be alive uh, if you're a part of this movie's uh, character uh, list. And then you have the land of the dead, which is in technicolor. Everybody's you know, raising a stein and, and they're singing bar tunes together. Uh, and, and it's just this inversion of what reality actually is. And it's something of, of what our own experience oftentimes is as it pertains to sin and folly versus obedience and wisdom. So that it, it really comes down to having eyes to see. For the next two months, we're, we're gonna peer into the house of Lady Folly, that, that land of the dead, that we might see her for who she truly is. And we're gonna do that looking through the lens of the seven deadly sins, some of Lady Folly's most well-known nicknames. Pride, envy, anger, sloth, greed, gluttony, and lust, all as seen in the book of Proverbs, all familiar temptresses, having seduced people in every culture, every generation throughout human history, no exemptions, and yet unfamiliar in the sense that we oftentimes don't see them for who they truly are, nor the destruction that they bring. I mean, make no mistake about it, there are surely more than, than seven sins, right? Just go to some of those long lists that the Apostle Paul lays out in the New Testament. More than seven nicknames for Lady Folly, so to speak. But, but those who, uh, that have come to be known as the seven deadly sins, they're surely among the most prevalent, acting as a sort of root system from which a multitudes of, sin, of sins shoot up, you could say. In the words of uh, Jeffrey Chaucer's Parson from the Canterbury Tales, the seven deadly sins are the trunk of the tree from which others branch, all leashed together. That yes, all sin is deadly in that all sin is rebellion against divine holiness worthy of divine judgment, but the seven help us to understand something of what's at the root, that which forms the trunk from which the branches of a thousand other sins spring forth that we might more effectively and intentionally then go to battle, that we might wage war against the poison of sin. John Owen, in his famous writing, The Mortification of Sin, says, be always at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Make no mistake about it, the, the war has already been won. If you're a Christian, you know that, right? the outcome determined through the victory of Jesus Christ. And at the same time, the, the Christian life is not a peacetime endeavor. It's a war for the soul. As I mentioned last week, and as you heard me pray just a few moments ago, Jesus died not only to secure our forgiveness, but also our spirit-empowered sin-killing obedience. 
That's why the apostle Paul would say, Romans 8, 13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Which brings us back to this morning's passage, those six verses standing between the personifications of wisdom and folly. The key to to directing our steps as we stand on that path. If you pick up in verse seven, whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man and he will increase in learning. According to these verses, there's a danger in sophistication. There's a danger in pride and unteachability, in refusing to acknowledge that there's a battle happening within us. As it's been famously said so many times throughout human history, pride comes before the fall that a wise man can still be wiser, Proverbs 9 says. A righteous man can increase in learning. That's why David could so humbly and beautifully say, I love these verses. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, know my heart, look inside. Try me, know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I think it's fair to say that this series will only lead the unteachable and proud deeper down the path of destruction. That's what unteachability and pride does. It's upside down to the kingdom of God in, in its value system. That poor in spirit beatitudes thing that Jesus talks about in his famous Sermon on the Mount. That on the one hand, Solomon exhorts us to, to see ourselves rightly, to see the battle within for what it truly is, On the other hand, exhorting us to see the Lord rightly, which is key in the fight to putting sin to death. If you pick up verses 10 through 12 of Proverbs 9, it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. For by me, your days will be multiplied and years will be added to your life. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. that's seated right in the center of this poem and its imagery of these two houses is the fear of the Lord, which the author of Proverbs 9 says is the beginning of wisdom. When we talk about the fear of the Lord, we're talking about reverence, love, humility, leading to obedience. I'm good for this quote, this scene about once a year, it's about time, so let me give it to you. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, you have the scene with the Pevensey kids hanging out with the Beaver family, learning about Aslan, the great lion, the Christ figure, trying to figure out, you know, who is he? What's he like? And they ask their their questions. You know, is he a man? And, And you pick up the story, Aslan a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly, certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion. The lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Well, that you will, dearie, and, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. 
or to use the language of Proverbs 9, foolish. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what my wife's telling you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And then my favorite line, it oftentimes doesn't get quoted, the very next one, Peter says, I'm longing to see him even if I do feel frightened when it comes to the point. I wanna ride on his back. I want that intimate relationship with him and yet his roar brings about a bow, a reverence within me. There's this beautiful both and. That Aslan-like right view of God, that's the key to obtaining wisdom the key to sin-killing obedience. Bruce Waltke in his commentary on the book of Proverbs says, what the alphabet is to reading, what notes are to reading music, what numerals are to mathematics, he says, the fear of the Lord is to attaining the revealed knowledge of this book. That without the 26 letters of the alphabet, there is no Shakespeare. There is no great Gatsby. There is no Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. There is no Lewis's Chronicles. In the same way, without reverence, love, and humility before God, there is no wisdom. There is no victory. That, that God has a vision for your story, for my story, to be one of the greats, one filled with life, one filled with honor, one filled with blessing. And it all begins with the ABCs of Christianity. Reverence, love, and humility before the great Lion of Judah. See, it, it's, it's not just about many churches in the Bible Belt Corridor would say it is, but it's not just about seeing the ugliness of the vices for what they truly are, the poison filling the, the chalice that Lady Wisdom offers. It's also about seeing and savoring the beauty of Jesus Christ for who he truly is. The ultimate fulfillment of the book of Proverbs, the Holy One of verse 10 it's why in the gospel accounts, Mark chapter one, verse 24, the demons would say, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Or John chapter six, verse 69, and we have believed and have come to know that you're the Holy One, Holy One of God. That Jesus is wisdom personified in its purest form who opens up his palatial palace to us to use that imagery of this morning's poem, a perfect, complete home represented by its seven pillars, his table spread with everything we need to satisfy us and bring us true and lasting joy. He's sending his messengers even now to invite any and all who are lacking to come to his table. In other words, if I could frame it in different words, we're not simply talking about, with respect to this series, the next seven weeks, about a fight for morality, but a fight for true and lasting joy. A life of true happiness, seated at the all-satisfying table of wisdom, capital W. As Marshall Siegel says in the book, Killjoys, which is a commentary on the seven deadly sins, he says, Christianity is not merely or even mainly about correcting your bad habits but about satisfying and fulfilling you in the deepest way possible and therefore making God look as great as he is. Our hearts were designed to enjoy a full and forever happiness, not the pitiful temporary pleasures for which we're too prone to settle. Pride, envy, anger, sloth, greed, 
gluttony, and lust. He says they're all woefully inadequate substitutes for the wonder, beauty, and affection of God. At first, as first hopes or dreams or loves, they are killjoys by comparison to Christ. They will rob you, not ravish you. They will numb you, not heal you. They will slaughter you, not save you. He goes on to say, the map inscribed on our sinful soul will not lead any of us to truth, glory, or happiness. It will lead us in circles of almost and good enough until it sits by our hospice bed, holding our confused, disappointed, and hopeless hand as we drift off into hell. We have to wake up, he says, scrap the old map and grab the compass pointing true north, trusting that the God who formed our hearts knows how to fill them. We have to fight for joy in the right places. Again, and I, I brought this up a few weeks ago, it, it's this idea of Christian hedonism, giving up tin to obtain gold, doing everything we possibly can to pursue happiness to the fullest extent, namely in the God who designed us to be happy in him. It's why the subtitle of this sermon series is The Fight for Happiness in the Killing of Sin. That This series is... Uh, not only about refusing to raise a glass and toast our own death, it's about embracing a seat at the table of the all-satisfying God. If you're not a Christian, if I can just frame this thing out and say there isn't enough moral uh, currency in all the universe to afford you a seat at that table, none of us can buy that kind of happiness. It's for those who acknowledge that they could never afford a seat at the table to begin with. It's for those who acknowledge that Jesus is their only hope, that he lived the, the sinless life that we could never live, bringing all the accomplishments that we could never bring to the feet of God. To, to use the language of this morning's passage, Jesus chose wisdom every time, and he credits that record of righteousness to us by faith. He died the sinner's death that we deserve to die, bearing the shame of our, our wandering, insatiable appetites in our place. He experienced the land of the dead that you and I might have life. That we're invited to the banqueting table of the all-satisfying God by grace alone, through faith alone, in, in the person and finished work of Jesus Christ alone. So that if you're not a Christian, I invite you, even now, to turn to him, to turn to Jesus, to turn from your simple ways, to use the language of this morning's passage, to enter the house of wisdom and to live And if you are a Christian, let's be honest, let's get real. It's not like we, we enter the house of wisdom never to leave. Our hearts functionally run back and forth between these two houses all the time. Going back to that dad in uh, Luke's gospel account that we just spent time with at the foot of the Mount of Transfiguration, I believe, help my unbelief. I'm a mixed bag, Jesus. I mean, on the one hand, you can rest. You can rest in the good news that Jesus died for the unrehabilitated you. Let me come back to Ray Ortland again. He says, we have histories. We are no longer blank slates, not one of us in this room. We have scribbles and erasures and misspellings and doodlings written messily all over us. In fact, we were born complicated. We were born with a bias toward folly. We were born guilty. Theologians call it original sin and it is real. 
Add on to our underlying depravity, the the layers of scar tissue, so to speak, from the sins we have committed and the wounds we have suffered, including scar tissue from botched surgeries, mostly self-performed. All of that complication, he says, is the real you and the real me poised here at the crossroads of Proverbs chapter nine. That is the unsimple you and me for whom an obvious choice can be paralyzing. But that is the real you and me God loves and understands and wants to help. You can rest. You can rest in the good news that Jesus died for the unrehabilitated you. He wasn't waiting for a better version of you to love, Christian. Securing your forgiveness for for the imperfect you that still today chooses to dine with Lady Folly at times. My goodness, the grace of God. And on the other hand, not only can you rest, but you can fight, knowing that Jesus, again, he died not only to secure your forgiveness, but your spirit-empowered, sin-killing obedience, that you might know deeper, lasting, true happiness, me too, namely in the God who designed us to be happy in him. So that I'll close with this this morning. Perhaps some of us need to be re-evangelized right now to come for the thousandth table to the one who can satisfy our souls every longing, to turn from the temptress and whichever of her seven deadly personas allure us most these days. And to say yes, not just no, but to say yes to the banqueting table of the all-satisfying God, the one whose table is spread with everything we need to satisfy us and bring us true and lasting joy.